I've had this on my heart for a few weeks, and I thought now would be a good time to focus on these scriptures. We're looking at Psalm 120 this morning and 121. Psalm 120 and 121. We're looking at these scriptures because we live in increasingly difficult times. We face problems that are not solvable. And what makes it impossible to solve is the incompatibility of nations. That is, it is impossible to adjust, resolve, find a way to coexist. And this conflict seems ready to expand and engulf the world and destroy it completely. And from these scriptures this morning, we realize two things. One, this conflict cannot be solved by people. It can only be solved by God. And until God solves this, the only one who can keep us is God. So we're going to start with Psalm 120 and finish with Psalm 121. Are you with me? All right. Here's what Psalm 120 says. In my distress, I cried to the Lord, and he heard me. Deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, or what shall be done to you, you false tongue? Sharp arrows of the warrior with coals of the broom tree. Woe is me that I dwell in Meshach, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. My soul has dwelt too long with one who hates peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Now, it's unusual to have the answer to the situation placed first in a psalm, but that's what we have in verse 1. That is, the psalmist cried out to God, and the the expression used and the tense of the verb, meaning that's what the psalmist did continually, completely calling out to the Lord in his trouble. And then the Lord hearing him. God hears prayer. God answers prayer. And that is a continuing action with no end in sight. The psalmist prayed, God kept answering. And that's how the psalmist endured an impossible situation that went on and on and on without an end in sight. Him praying to God, God continually answering his prayer. 
And what he's praying for is for God to deliver him from this insolvable situation. You notice in verse 7, he says, I am for peace. And peace is a good thing, is it not? Peace is harmony and everybody getting along, coexisting, finding a way to solve any problems. You adjust with reasonability. Let's figure out what the problem is and solve it together. We're different, but that doesn't mean we can't live together. You get to be you. I get to be me. Let's find a way to make this work. And you know, it says, when I speak, there in verse 7, which means he's speaking about peace, and he's speaking about it continually. I communicate. I offer goodwill. I try to make agreements so that we can make a way for both of us to live. Why not? Is that not reasonable? You know, when I looked on Wikipedia this morning to see how many attempts at making peace in the Middle East, I counted 34. 34 different ways to approach, approach the problem of conflict between Israel and people who want to destroy Israel. And this is only since 1948. But the entire history goes back to this psalm right here and even further before that. It's only now that it's coming to be such a problem that it involves all the nations. That not only do you have the Middle East involved, but you have Russia involved, Iran, China, Turkey, African nations, the United States is in there, the European Union is in there. Everybody is just sort of getting sucked into this. And it's a conflict that has a lot of suggestions how we can stop this. Let's do this. Let's do that. And as Wikipedia notes, 34 different times, only since 1948. Is that not reasonable? But here's the problem. The psalmist lives among barbarians. Kedar is somewhere on the Arabian Peninsula. Meshach is far to the north. And somebody pointed out that the psalmist can't live in both places at the same time. But it's not a location that's an issue. It's an attitude that the psalmist faces in both those places and in this moment, globally. What is acceptable behavior? And the point to Kedar, to Meshach, is that they are uncivilized. They don't live according to the rule of law. 
Now, this is a place where I found the dictionary let me down. Those of you who know me know every day I'm in my dictionary as I meditate, study the Bible. And I was meditating on this psalm, and I looked up civilization, and Merriam-Webster has something to the effect that it's an ongoing sort of a cultural thing where you have the arts and you have studies and knowledge and science and all that kind of thing. And I think, well, yeah, but what's the basis of the freedom to pursue these things that enrich people and give to people? What is the basis of that? And the basis of it is, you're not having to defend yourself every second against somebody who wants to take what you have. When you've got rights protected by justice, then people have the freedom to develop things that give to others. What makes civilization at its foundation is the rule of law. Law determines a person's rights that cannot be violated. It says, those are your possessions and nobody may take them. Everybody gets to have what belongs to themselves. We think, well, of course, that's because we live under the rule of law. Law determines how to resolve a dispute when a person's rights are violated, goes to court. The court looks at the evidence and decides who is the violator, who's the person who's been violated. You punish the evildoer, you repay what he has deserved, and you also make it up to the violated person. You restore those rights, see? And on that basis, people can coexist. Rights are maintained. Order is maintained. Right? But the opposite of the rule of law is barbarism, which is throw law out. It's not what a, an abstract rule says. It's what I want. Might makes right. And if you have the power, you can do whatever you want to whoever you want, and that other person is helpless to fight back because they can't. So if you can get away with it, you do. You treat others any way you want and take whatever you want and do whatever pleases you because other people don't matter. Now that is the essence of barbarism. Law is based on God. The whole idea comes from God. He's the one who determined there would be other beings in the universe besides himself. And when he created those beings, he then says, you have rights that protect you, that give you certain things that no one can take away because if they take those things away from you, they're wrong. You get to live. 
nobody can take your life away from you, and the possessions you have are yours. They don't belong to anybody else. No one has a right to take what is yours. So God says there will be justice in the earth. And as these rights are observed, as the laws are observed, then you have peace. You don't have people seeing what they can take and get away with, and you're always having to defend yourself. You actually have the opportunity to use your time in different ways. Discover what's going on in nature. Find ways to make money, to generate jobs, to build new technologies. You know, it can benefit the entire world to have justice and an understanding. This is how you behave with people. But barbarians say, forget God, forget rights, forget law. The only thing that counts is power and me. I want what I want. I don't care about anything else. I can lie. I can steal. I can kill. Now, you cannot have a relationship with a barbarian. Relationship implies connection and being mutual. But see, if you have to protect yourself all the time, that means you cannot have a relationship with that person who helps themselves to anything they want from you. Which means you can't have civilization. Barbarians are about destruction and death. And therefore, to this situation, there is no reasonable solution. Now, reasonable people think, let's work this out. Let's come to a conclusion. Let's see if we can't figure out a way so that nobody's rights are violated. Everybody gets to coexist. Right? Let's work out a solution so no one's rights are trampled on. But here's the problem. In verse 6, he says, My soul has dwelt too long with one who hates peace. Excuse me? Hates peace. Now, when you hate something, you view it as an enemy. And barbarians see peace as an enemy to be defeated and conquered. Now that would mean that war wins over peace. Destruction wins over life. Now, you notice in verse 2, the main prayer that the psalmist prays is about lying. Deceit. 
Uncivilized people deny the truth because the truth proves them to be wrong. The best way to not be wrong is to throw out truth and say whatever works in your favor. So barbarians breathe out lies. And many people believe those lies because they want to believe those lies. That's one of the great casualties that we're finding out in this current conflict between Israel and Hamas. Is Hamas lies about everything. Not just about a few things, but everything. And it's staggering to see the lies keep coming out. You, you see videos of the makeup teams working on the babies so they look damaged, so they can shoot a video talking about oppression in the hospital there in Gaza, but the babies have been made up by a makeup artist to look like they're hurting. Or when one of Hamas's rockets goes off target and lands in the parking lot of a hospital, the message goes out, Israel has damaged a hospital. And it goes around the world. And what Israel ends up proving is that it was Hamas's own missile. It went off target and landed not on the hospital, but in a parking lot. And it takes the New York Times several days before they finally say, well, we did listen to the Hamas spokesman, and so we found ourselves in error. Now, you'd think, if you were lied to, would you listen to that person ever again? Like, you're playing me from a, for a chump. But you have news media still listening to spokespeople from Hamas. That means they are disposed and tend to believe Hamas. They want to believe Hamas. They want to. Even though it's been demonstrated, they're lying. Now, you see, all these demonstrations of people who want to believe Hamas is right and Israel is wrong. All over the world. You think, okay, we're in a situation now where there is growing intolerance and inability to sit down and reason. And you've got Israel now in the position of saying, we are never going to have any kind of solution here. There's no two-state solution here. Because we gave a, an opportunity to begin a second state. And Hamas took all the infrastructure and all the money and made eight levels of tunnels throughout all of Gaza and especially under the main hospital in order to attack Israel. Now, there is no solution to this problem because if Israel says, well, let's start another experiment, they're going to take all the money and make more ways to attack Israel. 
There is no solution this way. So Israel says, we have to destroy Hamas completely. And that brings in Hezbollah. And that brings in Iran and Russia and the United States. And everything's heating up. And there is no solution. And everybody's starting to loosen up their nuclear sabers. And you can hear them pulling them in and out, making a little noise here. We got nukes. Yeah, well, we got them too. And everybody's getting real itchy trigger fingers. This is unsolvable. Now, who in the world could hate peace? You know, when you're continually at war, you don't have the ability to make food. So if you stay in a wartime situation, eventually you're going to run into famine. You can't have arts or concerts or science or any of these things. You don't have time for this. You have to protect yourself. We're looking at the end of civilization as we know it. Because nobody is backing off. Nobody is reasoning. Nobody is saying, how can we work this out? If you hate peace, if peace is the enemy, there is no solution. And the only person who could think this way is the devil. And there is no truce with the devil. The devil is completely at war with God, and this is not reasonable, and there is no possibility of resolving this rationally. So the psalmist is suffering and has suffered because he lives among barbarians who lie continually and it's a conflict that has no end. Now, what the psalmist does is remind himself about the future. Because he says in verse 3, What shall be given to you, or what shall be done to you, you false tongue? See, he's thinking about the retribution of God. God says, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. He's the one who says, this is what you did in your life. And now you're going to receive the reward or the punishment for it. There is most certainly a day of reckoning coming. And when you're in the midst of an insolvable situation... It's good to look ahead and just remember God is going to sort all of these crimes out. Sharp arrows of the warrior, burning coals of the broom tree, that's speaking about war and destruction. Barbarians inflict arrows and burning coals on their victims. And the point about retribution is that you reap what you sow. 
God is going to pay back to every person what they have sown. Have you sown death and destruction? Do you hate peace? You're going to reap that. If you live by the rocket launcher, you're going to die by that. Not only in conflict, but before the throne of God. And God has reserved everlasting punishment for people that have thrown his law behind their back, disregarded him, and acted in a barbaric way. If you sow death and destruction, you will receive that very condemnation, and it is inescapable. Nobody gets away with anything. I hope everybody understands that. But how do you live in the meantime until God sorts everything out? And the answer is in Psalm 121. Read along with me. I will lift up my eyes to the hills. From whence comes my help? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve you from all evil. He shall preserve your soul. The Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. Can you imagine these two psalms being right next to each other in the contrast that, yeah, you belong to the Lord, you live among barbarians, whether to the north or the south, all around, how do you live? The one who wrote Psalm 121 says, I keep looking at the mountains. That's the kind of language that it's talking about. I keep looking at the mountains. It's good for your mental health. You look at the mountains, not because you expect the mountains to suddenly get up and boom, boom, walk over to you and say, how can I help you, Rob? Don't expect help from the mountains. The psalmist doesn't. He looks at the mountains because he says, God made them. You know how a mountain is. It's just huge. It fills your sight. And you think to yourself, God made that. He's bigger. It's good to remind yourself of how big God is. And that's why he says, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Astronomy is good for you. Because when you start looking at the stars, you have to think about, one, there's billions of nuclear fission furnaces out there who are converting helium into hydrogen and Billions, all burning at the same time. 
That's billions in one galaxy. There's billions of galaxies. There's space between everything that's so unimaginable. Isaac Asimov, do you know who that guy is? He's the guy that coined the term hyperdrive that we all know so well because we all watch Star Wars. Well, they all got it from Isaac Asimov. And hyperdrive is kind of a neat little way to get around the universe when you don't want to worry about the fact that you can't do it. So hyperdrive gets you all around in real time, but Isaac Asimov once said, well, can't work. We can't even get to the closest star. He says, doesn't matter what kind of a rocket you use, what kind of fuel you got, that rocket is going to coast to a stop somewhere in the middle. Can't turn around and it can't go forward. It's impossible. You can't even get to the closest star. And we talk about distances so vast, we can't even think about it, but God is bigger. So think about God, I'm using my arms to demonstrate. <laughs> Figure one, the universe. Figure two, God is bigger. He's got all of these nuclear furnaces, all of them going at the same time. And all of that power and size is focused on your right foot, saying, I do not give permission for your foot to slip. Because that's what it says there. It says he will not allow it. He will not give permission. To whom? Well, there's a couple of places in the Bible where you can see the devil asking for permission. Like in the book of Job. God says to the devil, what do you think about Job? And the devil says, well... Why wouldn't he worship you? You protect him. But if you take away all that protection, let me at him, he'll curse you to your face. And God says, okay, but you can't kill him. And the devil just takes everything. And God says to the devil, well, what do you think? That didn't work. He says, yeah, but if you... Let me just crush him. Then he'll curse you. He says, okay, but you can't kill him. All these diseases and problems with Job, but the devil can't kill him because God did not give him permission. Now, if God said to the devil, you can have him, pow, would have been dead. But God says, no, you can't. That's because he's using all of this to work out God's purpose in Job's life. The devil means it for evil. God means it for good. Hmm. Simon Peter says to Jesus, all these others might deny you, but I will never deny you. And Jesus says, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. 
Satan demanded permission to sift Peter, and he got it. But again, God is going to work it out for good. He says, no, he's going to make it. So see, God says, no, I will not give permission for your foot to slip. doesn't matter how often I'm asked. He's a good dad. Have you ever had that happen? Dad, 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 can I please, huh? Dad, dad, no. Dad, huh, come on. You know what, kid? I'm not going to change my mind. He will not give permission for your foot to slip. So isn't that kind of amazing? That God is looking at your foot. Now I think he's out there juggling galaxies. He's got all this space out here. Why would he be worried about a little tiny speck? And then a little tiny on top of that speck, whose foot is about to slip. Really? In an entire universe, that's what you're looking at? And God says, of course. Ah, ah, ah. Nope, not going to let it happen. I like that. See, God is your keeper. There in verse 5. That's right up there with, the Lord is my shepherd. God is your keeper. And that verb is used six times. He keeps you, an individual. He keeps Israel, an entire nation. And God wants to be known as your keeper. So, you think about his power. God is keeping you with his power. All the power that keeps a billion, billion, billion suns burning is also focused on you. So he's going to keep you, but he keeps you by his authority. He will not give permission for your foot to slip. Now, if the devil can kill you, he can prove that God is not good. Peace is not possible. God does not exist. So God keeps you for his own purposes, which are bigger than yours. You just want to stay alive. There's nothing the matter with that, but God is going to keep you alive because you are testimony that he is God. So for a purpose bigger than your life, God is going to keep you. And he guards you 24 hours a day. You notice that? You need to sleep. You can't help it. You have to spend about a third of your life unconscious. But God never sleeps. That means there's never a time when he doesn't see something sneaking up on you. And it's not a surprise to him. To us, it's like, <gasps> but God knows. He knows. So, he always knows what you need. He always knows where you are. He knows your name. He hasn't forgotten. Now, that doesn't mean that you will get through life without a scratch and walk only on rose petals. 
Because that's not biblical theology, is it? You read this and you go, really? With that kind of a attitude. It says, really? I've been through some pretty hairy stuff in my life. And God says, yeah. Like the Apostle Paul. You know, Jesus told him directly all the things that he would suffer for the name of Jesus, and he did. And we can read about it. And, you know, you get your ship taken away three times while you're still in the water. And that's before his fourth. Danger everywhere. He would get beaten up, stoned. It would freak him out. So he didn't have enough money or clothes. He bled. It says in 2 Timothy 4, At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the proclamation might be fully accomplished that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And you remember how he died. Executed. But notice that it says God will protect your soul, there in verse 7. That is the immaterial part of you that will exist forever. Now, God is going to guard your soul and deliver your soul from the barbarians all around you. He will keep you from losing the plot and becoming just like them, because that is our danger, is to want to fit in, is to be silent and not provoke any response. Because the barbarians don't pay attention to things like, you shall not lie, you shall not steal, you shall not kill. The barbarians just kill you. So, the temptation is to just not make waves and be quiet. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't change anything. There is no compatibility and fitting in. This is one of the hard things to learn. So, here are the things we need to be aware of. The issues that we face today, right now, cannot be solved, humanly speaking. The U.S. is not going to solve this. The EU isn't going to. And the state of Israel will not solve the problem that they're in. Because they can take care of Hamas and then go after Hezbollah, but then they have to go after Iran and they have to... Look out for Russia. You can only do so much and then you run out. How's a little state like Israel going to take on Russia? Or anybody else? 
You see, you can't trust that irrational people are suddenly going to turn around and start loving peace. Only God is going to solve this conflict of all time. It's just coming to a head in our lifetime. And God is going to save Israel. When Israel yields to God and says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and they mean Jesus Christ. That is the purpose for everything that's going on right now, is to bring the power of the holy people to resist God to an end. And when that moment comes, Jesus will appear physically from heaven to save them. He's going to establish his rule on the earth forever. And that's, that is the only hope of the world. Everybody get me? Now, first point is that only Jesus is going to solve this. Here's the second point. It's important for us to keep speaking the truth and not be silent. Because again, like I say, we can be freaked out and think, if I open my mouth, I'm going to get killed. That might very well be. You might think, well, this person doesn't want to hear it. Nobody does. I didn't want to hear this stuff when I was not a believer. It bugged me. I don't, I don't want you talking to me about this stuff. It bugs me. But it, it kept coming back. And see, these people that talked to me had courage and guts. They weren't worried what I thought of them. They didn't care if they died because they knew where they were going with their life. So... God is the one who has made peace. Only peace comes through him only. Does everybody get that? So God commanded this message to be made known. That's what we looked at on Friday night in Romans. He commanded this message to be made known to all the nations. While we're here, we must Keep speaking that message and not be afraid. And because we believe God, therefore we pray. And I, I'm just thinking about this first verse of Psalm 120. In my distress, I cried to the Lord, and he heard me. Now, that's how we keep ourselves until Jesus comes for us, is to pray. And the first of all, you pray for peace with God personally. Have you prayed for that peace? Because Jesus died for your sins. And he made peace by the blood of his cross. And that's what keeps you in perfect peace, is when you receive that and say, he died for me, he took my sins away. you got to start there. Because if you don't have peace with God, 
you're still part of the problem. You're not part of the solution. But then if you've received Jesus, then you pray for God to be in every area of your life. Just like we hear about this morning, God helped me in school. He helped me on the job. Every area of your life, you pray God be in this and bring peace. To a colleague that is unreasonably angry all the time, there's got to be something wrong there. Only God can fix that. There is no hope apart from Jesus. So, you know, it says in Psalm 46, cease striving and know that I am God. The only way to experience that peace is to continually cast your burden upon the Lord. And then you pray that God will open people's hearts to the truth. Even the most unlikely barbarians that you know. Because you used to be a barbarian. And if God can save you, then he can save anybody. Can't he? It doesn't depend on your ability to sell Jesus. It depends on the power of the word of God to salvation. That's what it is. So then you say, great, I'm terrible at praying. I'm lousy at praying. Don't make me pray. I don't want to pray. I sound stupid when I pray. Well, here's how you start. Start small. And you say, God, I'm terrible at praying. You just prayed. You say, God, I hate praying. Please help me to pray because I can't pray. That's good. Do you know what prayer is? Helplessness. You're talking to God because you cannot do whatever it is you need to do. So you say, God, I'm helpless. And I'm helpless on my job. And I'm helpless at school. And I'm helpless in my family. I'm helpless. Will you please get into this? You're praying. All you got to do is stay helpless. And you got this. Because God is interested in answering your prayers. I think he delights to answer people's prayers in the midst of barbarians and just show it's not about power. It's not about arrogance and pride. It's about how God will intervene on behalf of the humble. And the humble pray to God. Let's pray now. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that you have always known that history would come to this point, that the crisis would be unsolvable, and that all of human life hangs in the balance. And we understand that civilization is about to end. It's going to descend into chaos. 
somebody's going to come along and look like they're going to solve all the problems. But this person is the double-crosser of all time. And he's going to double-cross everybody. Only you are going to solve the problems and make peace. And we look to you. Help us even now. We have things all around us that we cannot solve. We ask you to change hearts, open eyes and ears. We pray you'd give the governments of the earth wisdom. And Lord, we pray that many people would come to Jesus. There is no other solution. But we pray that you would keep our hearts. Help us to not live in anxiety, in despair, in fear, but instead, give us courage, give us trust in you. Help us to keep on praying. And we look for you to answer our prayers. Keep us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.